This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Paul Barclay. This is Big Ideas. It comes around every three years. Australia has arguably some of the best in the world, and you even get rewarded with a sausage sizzle. I'm talking about elections, of course. Judith Brett is Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe University, and she takes a critical look at our election system, its historic roots, and how well it's set up for the future. Driven by radical young colonists like Henry Parks, the Australian colonies were pioneers of democratic elections, adopting manhood suffrage and the secret ballot, and establishing non-partisan electoral administrations. Australia's tradition of majoritarian democracy continued into the 20th century with votes for women and preferential and compulsory voting. Judith Brett argues these features protect Australia against claims of voting fraud, as we've seen them in the United States. It makes campaigns less vicious, emotional and angry, and it levels the playing field for disadvantaged minority groups who in other countries often miss out and aren't heard. Henry Parks was a radical Democrat. And so what I'm going to talk about tonight is Australia's achievement of radical democracy in the 19th and early 20th century Australia. This oration remembers and celebrates the famous address in 1889 to the citizens of Tenterfield in which he rekindled the movement for federation of the Australian colonies. Politicians had been talking about it for at least a decade, but momentum was stalled, in no large part because New South Wales stood apart. Attentive-heeled, Parks brought the mother colony on board, and the next year, in 1890, a conference of leading politicians from each colony met in Melbourne and agreed to the way forward. Speaking in the Tenterfield School of Arts, Parks said, the great question which we have to consider is, whether the time has not now arisen for the creation on this Australian continent of an Australian government and an Australian parliament. Surely what the Americans have done by war, Australia can bring about by peace. I just want to repeat that. Surely what Americans have done by war, Australians can bring about by peace, which they did. Australia was born, one could argue, not on the battlefield, but in the ballot box in the two referenda in the last years of the 19th century that accepted the federal constitution. 16 years later, in 1915 on the Gallipoli Peninsula, the nation was born again when the mettle of its men was tested by war. Now the Anzac legend is a core Australian foundation myth. But what we need more than stories of blood and heroic sacrifice, compelling as these are, to understand our peace. We need more than this if we want to understand our peacetime nation and its achievements. So that's what I want to talk about tonight, the story of the development of Australia's electoral system. It's a story about confidence in the democratic majorities and about practical innovation to make sure that our elections capture the will of the majorities. My um, title, How Good Are Australian Elections?, First way I've been talking about it is to channel Scott Morrison, you know. How good is Australia? Thumbs up. So how good are Australian elections? And that's what I'm going to tell you about, the achievements. And then towards the end, or at the end, I'll raise some questions about what areas for improvement. So I'll begin with manhood suffrage and the secret ballot. When Park spoke at Tenterfield in 1889, these had been in place for almost three decades in Eastern Australia. As a young man in Birmingham in the 1830s, Parks was a participant in the campaign for the reform of Britain's parliament, which resulted in the 1832 Reform Act. This abolished the rotten boroughs and gave some representation to the new industrial cities like Birmingham. But it delivered nothing to the propertyless working men like Parks. Agitation for the reform of Parliament continued, carried by the Chartists, which was a working-class political movement formed in 1838, the year before the impoverished Parks, young Henry and his new wife Clorinda sailed to Australia as assisted migrants. Henry brought the Chartists' commitment to a democratic Parliament with him, as did many other young men 
who were forced by poverty and lack of opportunity to leave Great Britain during the hungry 40s. Their numbers were swelled in the 1850s after gold was discovered in Victoria and many more young people, especially men, flocked to the gold fields to seek their fortunes. The Chartists had six demands. The vote for all men, secret ballots to prevent bribery and intimidation, which is why they wanted the secret ballots, the abolition of property qualifications for members of parliament, payment for members of parliament, which was necessary if working men were ever to be able to enter parliament, and equal electoral districts and annual parliaments. The annual parliament one has never been achieved and probably wasn't a very good idea, but the others have been achieved and were good ideas. Now, the 1850s are crucial years for the establishment of Australia's electoral system. During this decade, all the colonies except for Western Australia were granted self-government and constitutions were adopted which established two-chamber parliaments. West Australia was still accepting convicts and it was hence excluded from self-government. Which men would be able to vote and stand then for these new parliaments? The Chartists wanted no property qualifications at all, but the British Parliament was the final arbiter and it was persuaded to set a relatively low property qualification. It couldn't quite come at abolishing property qualifications altogether. It was persuaded by a conservative ex-colonist called Robert Lowe, who used a conservative argument. He said that if the property qualification was set too high, this would advantage the rich ex-convicts, but it would disadvantage worthy new immigrants who'd yet to establish themselves and wouldn't be able to meet the property qualifications. So he persuaded the British government that the vote was given to all adult men who paid a minimum of £10 rent a year. Now, this was the same level as was set in Britain, but the colonial economies were very different from the British economy at that time, and they became an even more different after gold was discovered and inflation took off and rents soared. So far more men were automatically enfranchised than the British Parliament had ever intended. In the first elections in New South Wales that were held after self-government, 63% of men in the state had the vote and a whopping 95% in Sydney, where rents were high. In England at the same time, only 20% of adult men would qualified for the vote under that rental barrier. And the story was similar in Victoria. In the wake of the Eureka uprising, the vote was given to any man who had a mining licence, and these only cost a pound a year. So this was virtual manhood suffrage. South Australia simply included manhood suffrage in its new constitution. The three other states, though, were much slower. Tasmania, with its large population of ex-convicts, didn't grant manhood suffrage until 1900. Surprising fact I found. Still, this was well ahead of Britain, which delayed until after World War I. Though I should mention in this story of democratic achievement, there's one major impediment, was, which was that the franchises for the upper houses, the legislative councils, were nowhere near as democratic. They still had substantial property qualifications. These stayed in place until well into the 20th century, and which led to often protracted conflicts between democratically elected lower houses and conservative upper houses, which blocked progressive reforms. But tonight we're going to stick with the good story. So to keep with the story of democratic progress. The Australian colonies also achieved early the second of the Chartists' demands, well ahead of Britain again, the secret ballot. After the 1932 Reform Bill, which enfranchised a lot of new people, the British landed ruling class fought back by insisting on open voting. Why did they want open voting? They wanted open voting so that the tenant farmer announcing his vote to the returning officer at a polling booth could be intimidated by the landowner's bailiffs. Wavering electors were bribed with drink. So it was in fact a public declaration of who you stood for. Not all Australian politicians supported a secret ballot, but the pressure was on. There was a problem though. How was it to be achieved, especially after the franchises had been extended and very large numbers of men were gonna turn up at the polling booth to vote? if it was to happen in secret, 
at first they thought, well, they could all file into, they'd be room, they'd, they'd go to the returning officer, the returning officer would tick and say, yes, you're fine, and then they'd go into a room where they'd vote. They trialled this, this would take far too long. Secret voting was already established in some parts of the United States, where electors brought a piece of paper to the polling booth, which had written down, was already filled in with the name of who they wanted to vote for. Political parties were already established in the United States. So it was easy. The political parties started preparing these ballots for their electors. So it was quite easy to see who people voted for, whether it was a red or a blue piece of paper, for example. So the challenge was a practical one. How was the secret ballot to actually be implemented? And it was achieved by a man called Henry Chapman, who the Victorian Parliament gave the task of finding a solution. He was a student of the radical thinker and parliamentary reformer, Jeremy Bentham. And he took up Bentham's suggestion that the voters should arrive at the polling booth empty-handed. That is not bring a bit of paper with the name of the preferred candidate written on it. The government would give them a ballot paper with the candidate's names listed. And all the voter would have to do was to complete the ballot paper and put it in the ballot box. In this first trials, they had to cross it out, the ones they didn't want, with, and, you know, they've got ink and blotting paper and took ages. So then there was the invention of putting little boxes next to the names and you just had to put a cross next to the one you wanted. But there was still another practical problem, which was that sharp-eyed spies could watch the ballot paper being filled in. Perhaps they should go into the second room, I suggest, but this was going to take too long. And the solution was a room with five or six separate stalls where men could vote in private. Thus was invented what became known as the Australian ballot, and it spread throughout the world as more and more countries adopted the secret ballot and the wooden dividing panels. These have now been replaced with cardboard, but it's exactly the same design as was invented in Victoria and also in South Australia at about the same time they were introduced in the 1850s. So it's sometimes said that Australia invented the secret ballot, which is wrong. It didn't invent it, but it did invent the means to achieve it. Australia's next pioneering achievement was giving women the vote. This happened in South Australia in December 1894, and it was achieved through a spectacular own goal by the bill's conservative opponents. The usual arguments were being put forward that women were too stupid to vote or too emotional or too unworldly or politics was too nasty and you know women were too, were too pure to be messed up, you know, involved in this, this nasty world. They didn't, and or they didn't want the vote anyway. These had all failed and the bill looked like the bill was going to be passed. The Conservatives decided to try a different tack and they moved an amendment that women should also have the right to stand for Parliament. The women hadn't asked for this, and the Conservatives thought that it was so obviously ridiculous that it would lead to the bill being thrown out. How wrong they were. The supporters embraced the amendment, and South Australian women were granted not just the right to vote, but the right to stand for Parliament. The latter was a world first, it's first place in getting the women's vote. They were pipped at the post by New Zealand the year before. This meant that South Australian women were able to vote in the referenda on federation. And that's crucial to understanding the easy passage of women's suffrage in the new Commonwealth Parliament. Effectively what happened was there was a sort of an implicit guarantee to women, to the South Australian women, that women's suffrage would come with the new Parliament. If that hadn't been in place, the risk was that the South Australian women would vote against federation. And if one of the states voted, one of the colonies, I should say, voted against it, well, then federation wouldn't have happened. The first federal parliament then was elected on the basis of the electoral laws of the various colonies. And these varied. As I said, women could vote in South Australia, but not elsewhere. Aborigines could vote in New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia, but not in Western Australia or Queensland. The decision was made that the laws governing federal elections would be the same or uniform across all the states. And this is a really another important feature of our electoral system, which distinguishes it from the United States, where elections in federal political institutions, including the president, are conducted according to state laws, which vary a good deal from state to state. Here, 
for federal elections, we're all, we all vote according to the same laws. Though for a long time, there was quite substantial differences between the state laws. So the Commonwealth Franchise Act of 1902 would henceforth govern federal elections. This act established universal franchise for all men and women, but only if they were white. The bill which the Liberal government of Edmund Barton and Alfred Deakin took to the parliament gave the vote to all natural born or naturalised subjects of the king resident in Australia for six months or more. That is, it was a very liberal bill with no exclusions based on race. This was quickly pointed out that this would give the vote to coloured members of the British Empire living in Australia, for example, an Indian or a Jamaican. The leader of the government in the Senate who was overseeing the passage of the bill, Richard O'Connor, responded that this was a very small number of men or of people and that the Racially Restrictive Immigration Act would mean it didn't grow. He also pointed out that only in Western Australia and Queensland were coloured people and Aborigines prevented from voting. At that point they could vote in colonial elections and that many were already on the electoral rolls and that the right of these individuals to vote in federal elections was protected by the constitution. O'Connor argued forcefully that Aborigines should not be excluded from the franchise. It was monstrous, he said, that Aboriginal men able to vote under colonial legislation would have to tell their sons, although your people owned this country for centuries before the white man came here, although you are his equal in intelligence, you shall not have the right to vote. Opposition to giving Aboriginal people the vote was vehement, especially from West Australian and Queensland senators and members of the lower house. And in the end, O'Connor didn't have the numbers to pass the bill and he had to give in. The Aboriginal natives of Asia, Africa, Australia and the islands of the Pacific were excluded, except for the Maoris who were allowed to vote. The disenfranchisement of Aborigines is one of the infamous stepping stones of cruelty and shame in our treatment of Indigenous Australians, which wasn't fully remedied until 1962, when all Aboriginal people got the right to vote. Now, universal franchise is the bedrock of a democratic electoral system. Everyone having the right to vote is a necessary condition of democracy, but is it sufficient? When and where do we vote? And who draws up the boundaries of the electorates? And should voting be compulsory? I began thinking hard about these elect details of our electoral system after my publisher, Michael Haywood of Text, suggested to me that I write a book on compulsory voting. Australia is one of only 19 of the world's 166 democracies that make voting compulsory. None of Europe's large democracies do, and none of the countries we most often compare ourselves with the United Kingdom, the United States, Canada, New Zealand or Ireland. I had this conversation shortly after Trump had defeated Hillary Clinton in the 2016 presidential election and many Australians were reassuring ourselves that because of compulsory voting, such a man could never be elected here. So Michael asked himself, well, why has Australia got compulsory voting and how did we get it? He said he didn't know and he thought that if he didn't know, Neither would most other Australians, and would I write a book about it? I wasn't convinced that there was a book in it, but I said I'd think about it, and I did some reading. And I came to the conclusion that not only was there a book in it, but more importantly, the compulsory voting was the culmination of a tradition of radical majoritarian democracy in Australia, which stretched back to the establishment of self-government in the 1850s and the invention of the Australian ballot. I also learned in doing the research just how distinctive Australia's achievements were in the administration of elections and how important this has been to how we vote. Elections demand organisation. Someone has to run them and they need rules to go by. In the 19th century in England, elections were run by local government officers who took on extra tasks at election time and in the United States it was done by the political parties. In Australia, they came to be run by paid public servants. Now, I haven't got time to tell you the detail of this, but the colony of South Australia pioneered this when government officials took over the management of the electoral rolls. William Boothby, after whom the electorate of Boothby in South Australia is named, was South Australia's chief electoral officer for almost half a century. 
and he established the first permanent electoral organisation in the world. The new Commonwealth adopted Boothby's organisational model and created the Commonwealth Electoral Office to manage the federal role and run federal elections. In 1984, this became the Australian Electoral Commission. Now, not only does it manage elections, but it also determines electoral boundaries, a really crucial decision-making power. And it oversees regular redistributions as populations shift. So this stands in sharp contrast again to the way elections are conducted, particularly in the United States, where elected party officials in different states draw up electoral boundaries to their party's advantages. So they look like pieces of jigsaw puzzles sometimes while you take in your supporters and exclude your opponents. And in some states, the electoral administration also indulges in really dreadful voter suppression to prevent supporters of their rival party from voting. Now, there's a couple of other unique features of the Australian electoral system. Two, we owe to the early strength of the Labor Party. Something I didn't really fully realise until I did the research was that in many other countries, a voter has no choice about where to vote. You're registered to a particular polling booth and you turn up there to vote on voting day. You can make arrangements like postal voting or proxy voting if you know in advance you're not going to be there. But if, for example, you know, you plan to get the train home from work and the train breaks down and you don't make it back to that polling booth, you can't just pop out at lunchtime and vote in any other booth. Since 1902, though, Australians have been able to vote in any polling booth in their state. Labor pushed for this so that itinerant rural workers would be able to vote. The drovers, shearers and fruit pickers who would likely be away from home when an election was called and would also be more likely to vote Labor. This was something that Labor got into the first Federal Franchise Act. The second distinctive feature we owe to Labor is that we vote on a Saturday. Saturday voting was first introduced in Queensland as that was the day that the farmers came to town to shop. But after Labor won federal government in 1910, it introduced Saturday voting for federal elections. Saturday afternoon was a half holiday, so it made it much easier for working people to vote. And it was also easier for housewives because their husbands were home, could accompany them to the polling booth or could mind the children. So these two features, Saturday voting and the choice of polling booth, enabled the invention of the democracy sausage. Most polling booths, it wasn't their intention, but most polling booths are at community centres, schools, kindergartens, church halls, and over the years, volunteers have run food and drink stalls on election day to raise money. At the 2010 Queensland election, some Brisbane friends set up a website for groups to register their election day fundraising offerings to help people choose where to vote. That is, the democracy sausage completely depends on the fact that we have a choice of where we vote. England won't be able to do it, or America or Ireland, where you've got to go you know, back, to, back to where you were born almost. In 2016, it was the Australian word of the year. So now we can get up on a Saturday morning thinking about breakfast and can go to the website, which will tell of the various offerings, which ones are going to have, be selling sausages, where there's vegan options, where you can get coffee and muffins and so on. And it's added a festive element to our election day, and I think too an important hook into voting for the social media generation. It's um, an example of, of a sort of a flexibility in our voting system. There are two more distinctive elements of the way we vote that I want to mention. Preferential voting, and last but not least, compulsory voting. Now, unlike the Australian ballot, which took the world by storm and votes for women, and more recently, an impartial body to administer elections, in neither preferential nor compulsory voting has Australia led the world. Though I'd argue that democracy would be much stronger in many countries if we had. Preferential voting was introduced in 1919 because of the pressure from farmers groups who felt that their interests were insufficiently represented by the major non-Labor party then in government, the Nationalist Party, that it was basically run by men from the city. And the farmers were threatening to stand candidates against sitting government members in, three, in what would effectively be three-cornered contests. In the first-past-the-post system that was then in place, such three-cornered contests 
risk the seat falling to Labor. For example, if the farmers and the nationalists won 30 per cent each and Labor won 40 per cent, Labor would win the seat, even though it hadn't won the majority of votes on our notion of majority of 50 per cent plus one. Unlike the first past the post, where the most preferred candidate wins, with preferential voting, victory goes to the one that's least disliked. So under threat, the nationalist government introduced preferential voting and farmer party candidates won 11 seats. And a year later, the country party was formed. And in 1922, it won enough seats to deny the government an absolute majority. And the new country party then drove a very hard bargain to enter a coalition with the nationalists, a bargain which still governs relations between the Liberals and the Nationals when they form a coalition government. I'm a great fan of preferential voting. It enables minor parties and independents to influence election outcomes through exchanging preferences for policy outcomes, as the DLP did with the Menzies government. More recently, it's enabled the Greens and independents to win seats. And the wave of teal independents owe their success to the determination of Australian farmers a century ago to form their own party. So it's given our electoral system, I think, the flexibility to accommodate minority interests and to respond creatively to the decline in support for our major parties of government. Compulsory voting followed soon after preferential voting in 1924. People had been arguing for it intermittently since the middle of the 19th century. The most common argument was that with compulsory voting, the government would be elected by the majority of voters, not just by the majority of those who turned up on the day, and that this would enhance the government's democratic legitimacy and make sure that politicians paid attention to the interests of all the people, not just their base. As I read through the various parliamentary debates, which went on from the middle of the 19th century, I was struck by the absence of philosophical objections, of appeals to freedom or liberty or rights. The arguments raised against it were mostly practical. It would be too hard to enforce. What should, level should the fine be set at? If it was too high, it would discourage people from enrolling to vote if they risk being fined for not voting and such, such arguments. Labor had made it compulsory to be on the electoral roll in 1911, but it wouldn't take the next obvious step and make voting compulsory because this would require it to abandon its long-standing objection to postal voting. You couldn't make voting compulsory and not have postal voting. Labor was opposed to postal voting because it risked the secrecy of the ballot. Doctors might oversee the votes of their patients, squatters their workers, housewives their servants. And you couldn't, as I said, you couldn't make it compulsory without postal voting. But by 1924, Labor had given up on opposing postal voting and, and now supported it. Queensland had experimented with it during the war at a state election and Labor had actually benefited. So that's one of the reasons Labor now thought it might actually help it. The other is that Labor was a pretty demoralised party by the early 1920s after the splits over conscription. The catalyst for its introduction was a very low turnout at the federal election in 1922. Just short of 58% of people voted, a drop of 17% since the election in 1919. But in Queensland, 83% turned out. So this seemed to suggest that compulsory voting would actually have a big impact on the turnout. When a private member's bill was introduced in 1924, it went through both houses in a single day. Only one speaker made a sustained objection to compulsion as a matter of principle, a New South Wales Labor senator who'd been a fierce opponent of conscription. He argued that it was an infringement of the liberty of the individual, but as he was a Labor man, he would abide by party policy and vote with the caucus. So compulsory voting is the result of Australia's commitment to majoritarian democracy, as was its early adoption of manhood suffrage and votes for women, and its pioneering impartial electoral administration. It has four great advantages, I think. First, it fosters high turnouts. Australian turnouts are above 90% of registered voters. Election outcomes are thus more legitimate 
when we know that the government won support from the majority of registered voters, even though we're sometimes very disappointed with, their, with the outcome. Second, politicians can't afford to completely ignore the interests of particular groups. We know from voting studies that where voting is voluntary, it's the poorest, least well-educated, most marginal people who are least likely to vote. But with compulsory voting, policies that are pitched only at the comfortable are a big risk. Third, compulsory voting fosters political engagement. Young people turning 18 have to vote. When I was teaching, I taught first-year Australian politics for many years, and you know, I'd go around the tutorials, ask people why they're doing the subject. The most common answer was, well, I'm turning 18, I'm going to have to vote. I thought I should find out something about how our politics works. And so they're forced to pay at least minimal attention to parties, to leaders and policies. And as well, as a nation in which we have an immigration nation, new immigrants, when they become citizens, also acquire the right, not just the right, but the obligation to vote. And so they too acquire the obligation to find out something about our electoral system and the choices that the parties are offering. The fourth and final advantage is that compulsory voting lowers the temperature of political debate and draws our politics away from the zealots of left and right towards the so-called sensible centre. Because parties don't have to get out the vote, they don't have to motivate people to go to the polling booths, they're less likely to campaign on highly emotive, divisive issues, especially those around sexuality and religion. So that's the statement part of the title, how good are Australian elections? And the elaboration of my answer, which is that they're very good indeed. Now, to ask it as a more open-ended critical question, how could they be improved? What could be improved? Now, I don't here plan to consider issues to do with funding of campaigns and the regulations governing political advertising, but I want to keep the focus on voting. And I think there's one big flaw in the majoritarian basis of Australia's electoral system, which is the disproportionate weight that's given to Tasmania. The constitution guarantees five electorates, irrespective of population, and now Tasmania's, that's only relevant to Tasmania, whose federal electorates have considerably fewer voters than in the mainland, around 80,000 compared to 113,000 on the mainland. But it's in the Senate that Tasmania's overrepresentation is most egregious. 12 senators for a population of 571,000 compared with two senators for the ACT's population of 456,000. But short of a referendum to remove Tasmania's legal status as a state, which is not likely to happen, I don't think there's anything we can do about this. It's a flaw we're gonna to have to live with. The second though, is easier to fix, and this is my last point, which is that permanent residents are unable to vote. The 1902 bill that was introduced by Richard O'Connor gave the right to vote on one ground only, residence in the Commonwealth of six months or over by any person of adult age. This liberal intention was compromised, as we've seen by racial exclusiveness, but it is more generous in terms of residence than our current law, which bases the right to vote on citizenship. Permanent residents have no say in the laws which govern them, even though they may have lived here and paid taxes for years. It affects around 1.7 million people. There's another 1.7 million people on various forms of temporary visas, and some people argue that they too should be able to vote after a period of residency. I'm not so convinced about that one, but I am about the permanent residence, because in applying for permanent residency and achieving it, there's a commitment to make Australia a permanent home. New Zealand, for example, gives the right to vote to people after a year's continuous residence. This would be in keeping with the spirit of radical majoritarian democracy that was brought to Australia by men like Henry Parks in the middle of the 19th century. And unlike the disproportionate representation of Tasmanians, it's something we could do something about. Thank you. That's Judith Brett explaining our electoral system from the introduction of the secret ballot to the democracy sausage. And just as everyone gets to vote in this country, everyone in the audience gets to ask a question. 
you began with that uh, observation, I think it was from Parks, what Americans have done by war, Australia can do by peace. It, it's a really interesting observation because it is, it is kind of a critical difference between the story of, of America and, and the story of Australia. Some people have actually analysed that as a, a good thing, though it is, no doubt. <laughs> we didn't have the suffering of a civil war and so forth, or a war of independence. But some people have made the point, it may even have been you that I read uh, has made this point as well, that in a way we've kind of inherited a number of things almost because it was easy, which does sort of fit that Australian narrative of that sort of laconic, you know, simplest path, you know, pragmatism in much of, of Australia's design. I wonder uh, what, what you think about that, whether we just sort of slid into democracy and it's turned out to be pretty good. And as you say, in a range of ways, we made it better, sometimes accidentally and sometimes deliberately because of the Chartists and others in that, in that early process. But I wonder if you could just talk about the way in which we got it, that we developed these democratic traditions and whether in some ways that's led to us being perhaps a little lazy about making subsequent changes, particularly the big one, of course, being to complete the project and become a republic. I don't think it was as easy as all that. I mean, if you look at the achievement of votes for women, for example, that was the result of a long, fairly, you know, fiercely fought campaign by women for quite a while. And, and although women got the vote in 1902 at the federal level, I mean, it was 1909 before they got it at Victoria. I mean, that campaign had to stay up. So there was a, there was a certain amount of conservatism still built into the system. And I think that the, which I, what I didn't talk about, but there were a lot of struggles between the, the upper and lower houses where, you know, you had these very conservative councils, particularly around the distribution of land, for example. I mean, they blocked early, they blocked giving votes for women for, you know, decades. So I don't know that it's been that easy. <laughs> I think the point that I was trying to make there is that if you look at our, at our foundation myths, Anzac has just, and particularly since it was sort of reinvented by John Howard, just looms enormously large. And so somebody like Alfred Deakin, who I think is a really, I mean, he's a really important historical figure, but a really interesting and amazing man in many ways, is not particularly well known. He's fallen out of popular memory. And when I was writing the book, I was thinking, well, why is it? Well, it's because the First World War comes straight afterwards. And so you then get a whole new batch of heroes, people like John Monash and Pompey Elliott and there's a way in which those sort of heroic sacrifices capture the imagination in a way that building democratic political institutions looks a bit tame. Yeah, no, I accept that. But I suppose what I'm trying to get at is the absence of any sort of spirited rights debates that we have in Australia that sort of feature in, in, in American politics. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point. But historically, it's because Australia is founded in the 19th, not in the 18th century. And so... We're not as worried about rights as the, as the Americans are in our political culture. Government's already here from the beginning. We didn't have to sort of create a government. Basically, we don't have a sort of historically deep belief in natural rights. We see rights more as coming from the existence of a stable government in the way the Americans have a sense of of, of the individual and their natural rights in tension with government. That's right. There's almost like sort of a an antagonism toward yeah. government, uh, yeah. hence the Second Amendment, uh, you know, which yeah. is premised on this idea that at some point you may need to be at war, at, at defending yourself yeah. physically against a, your own government. They have a sort of social contract theory that you start with rights-bearing individuals who give over little bits of their rights to the government and that's what creates the government's legitimacy, whereas we started with the Crown, which is already there and legitimate. And it does explain to some extent why we're sort of stalled yes. over the issue of the Republic. And potentially uh, a similar thing that may occur, the upcoming referendum on uh, the Uluru agenda, again, we may find ourselves somewhat stalled, somewhat you know, disinclined towards that next leap. I suppose what I'm saying is because of a sort of a, an almost like a truncated version of nationhood, we inherited a system, it's worked well, we have that if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of logic which came through in the, in the 1999 referendum. It's a pretty pervasive kind of Australian idea. 
No, but the 1999 referendum was lost because John Howard was clever enough to split the Republicans. It wasn't... I mean, there were some people who voted no on the, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it grounds. But there was a lot of them who voted no because they wanted to directly... They didn't like the model. Look, I think part of the problem is that sovereignty never got to the people in Australia. It's, it, it lands in Parliament. That's where it sits. Well, on this issue of compulsory voting and yeah. what that's led to... You hinted at this when you talked about the way our system doesn't require the political parties to sort of tap into those emotive issues, yeah. which is not really a good basis, I think we'll all agree, for making any decisions, but the system almost sort of drives it towards that. You have to really motivate people to get out there and vote, and they're going to do that when they're impassioned about something, usually on the, in the negative side, you know, something that's about to be taken away from them. Our system doesn't do that. It's a really critical aspect, isn't it, of our system? And Nick Minchin, who I think, I'm not sure if he still is, but he's been the chair of Museum of Australian Democracy, he in his time was a strong advocate of getting rid of compulsory that's voting. Right. But really it... It's not an issue that's had much purchase, is it? No. I mean, when opinion polls are taken, there's generally somewhere between 60 and 70% of Australians say yes to compulsory voting, that they think it's a good thing. Some of them might object to it. But Minchin made a big effort to try to convince John Howard to do something about it. John Howard's on record as saying he doesn't support compulsory voting, but he said the majority of Australians do so clearly Howard made the decision that he wasn't going to expend political capital on it. So there is a, a sort of a, a libertarian wing, if you like, of the Liberal Party that is opposed to it. But on the whole, uh, most Australians, I think, support it. And I actually think that democracy sausage has been a good thing because I think it's given a sort of... I don't know, I mean, people, you know, they, they smile when you talk about... It. It's a slightly jokey thing and it feels sort of comfortable somehow. It's like there's a reverent coda to the moment where you yeah. go in and you do your serious thing and you come out and you scoff a sausage. And you put, know. Your, you know, put yourself on yeah. social media. That's or right. And it was a really good point you made about the way it enables us to, a new generation to sort of hook into, you know, yeah. via social media and the like. Let's take a question from over here. Yeah, thanks, Mark. My name is John Lawrence, resident of Canberra. So I wanted to ask a sort of a comparative question about um, putting New Zealand aside for a moment because they're doing their own thing and obviously the US is its own sort of dumpster fire. But looking at the UK and Canada, particularly as sort of a reference point, particularly in terms of like first past the post and what made me think of this, there was a, there's an uh, opinion poll out in the UK now which has the Conservative vote on 19% leading to a loss of every single seat they hold. And we've seen, you know, similar sort of wipeouts like that have happened in Canada in the past as well. Why do you think it is that particularly those two countries have not sort of followed the Australian example in terms of preferential voting particularly? Um, voting on a Saturday is also a pretty good idea. But also um, why they don't get around to electing their upper houses, which has always seemed like a good idea to me. Look, I don't really think I can answer that. I don't know why other countries don't adopt preferential voting. I guess, you know, often political parties are nervous about changes and they think it might advantage the other one. They, obviously in England they would think it would advantage the Liberal Democrats but I, I can't really answer that question. I feel as if certainly on the voting, the fact that you've got to go back to the polling booth where you, you registered, it seems to me that in that there's um, the ghost of property qualifications. The initially voters were householders and it's like the, the house that, you know, that, that becomes the basis from which you your right to vote comes, whereas that was abolished very early in Australia. So my name is Zalia Lai and I'm from Canberra. My question for you is, Australia is currently experiencing a trust deficit at a time where pol former politicians like Clive Palmer can buy an election. How do we restore trust in Australia's democracy? Well, look... I mean, I think there needs to be work done on the donation laws and on spending. But I'm not so convinced that about the trust deficit. I mean, I, you know, like I think we've just had a really successful election. And um, I think that the uh, election of the Teal candidates is really interesting for showing the way in which the electoral system provides a flexibility where the political parties have been not picking up shifts that have been taking place in, in a lot of 
popular views. And also there's been, um, I think, real question marks over the quality of some of our parliamentarians. And the electoral system has thrown up a new and different type of, of candidate in all these really articulate professional women. So I suppose what I think is that the election and the way it, and the parliament, that it, this new sort of parliament that got created, the hope is that, I mean, I think that will restore trust or will build trust. It won't restore it totally because Australians have always been a bit cynical about politicians anyway, going back to the 19th century. It's an interesting point, isn't it? Because uh, Simon Himes of Court makes the point in his book um, about the Big Teal where he says that the votes for those independents in a relatively small number of electorates vastly outweighed the votes that Clive Palmer's party was able to get across the entire nation after spending $80 million. And in a way, that's a vindication for community action rather than for a vulgar upchuck of money, which is what we saw from him. Uh, on this side, please. Russell McGowan. I'm the citizen of Chapman in the ACT. Now, you've outlined some strengths and weaknesses of our electoral system, and I acknowledge the strengths, but I want to focus on the weaknesses. One of them is the Senate. Uh, unrepresentative swill, according to one of our Prime Ministers. How do we fix the Senate? And I'm wondering, by focusing on voting, you mentioned the Chartists having originally had the intention of having just an annual parliament. Uh, what period should our parliaments have and is it the extending the Senate's terms to eight years, two terms of the House of Representatives, that stops us from extending the term of, um, uh, of Parliament, both in the lower and upper houses? And so two questions there about the Senate. And you're quite right, I didn't really talk about the Senate voting system. And again, it, it was very unstable. It changed quite a lot during the 20th century. There was block voting for a while and what I find interesting is that it's still not quite right, but, but there, there is tinkering, there is attempts when, when problems emerge with the sort of preference whispering and things to try to fix it. So there's a way in which, um, although yes, there's inertia built into it, Australians have shown themselves actually fairly willing to try and change things when they don't seem to be working well. Um, fixed terms, I have an open mind on that. I, I'm just not sure about whether... An increase from three-year terms, meaning six-year... To four-year. Well, no, I, why four? Uh, the UK normally has a five-year term. France has seven-year terms for some of its offices. Yes, I, I don't have a strong view on that. I'm just putting it into the mix. as yeah, maybe yeah. something w which would change the argument about the way our Senate operates, for example. Yeah, yeah. Oh, hello, uh, my name's George Levantis. I also live in Canberra. Uh, my question is actually a little bit similar to Zali's about trust. But I was just thinking after the 2020 US presidential election, obviously Donald Trump's rhetoric around uh, electoral integrity um, and voter fraud and election fraud, it made me think reading a statistic earlier this week something, a really high number, something like 40% of American voters don't recognise Joe Biden as the legitimate president of the United States. I was thinking, what do you think are the kind of institutions in Australia and like the systems of Australia's voting systems that would protect Australia from ever kind of reaching a point where uh, people have lost faith in the electoral systems? I was thinking compulsory voting sounds really good, but I wanted to know your thoughts. What, what really protects us from having a big distrust in the voting system? Well, I think compulsory voting, but also the fact that our elections are administered by a non-partisan uh, body, by the Australian Electoral Commission and, the, and politicians. Like, for example, if we think about when a redistribution happens, populations shift. The Australian Electoral Commission says there's been a population shift here, we're going to redraw the boundaries, they put up a proposal. The politicians can make representations, the political parties can say we think it should be like this or that. They don't make the decision. The Australian Electoral Commission makes the decision. And I think that is really protects it. The Australian Electoral Commission provides all the electoral officers regulations. For example, one of the things I thought somebody might, people might ask about, which is, um, con you know, convenience voting, the fact that we're all vote, a lot of people now, you know, we vote earlier. But it's the Australian Electoral Commission that makes, that makes the call on those things. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's a lot of trust in outcomes. They manage the counting of the votes. So it's really different. Whereas in America, you've got, I mean, I think Peter Brent said something. I mean, it's like you've got 
in each state and even in sometimes in counties within states, the laws are different. Things on prisoner voting or um, absentee voting and um, residential requirements and all these things. So I think it's the fact that the Australian Electoral Commission, but also that, we, that our electoral laws are uniform across the country. I think that's another reason why there's a degree of trust. So I think we're pretty well protected from the sort of mess that we're seeing in the electoral system in the United States. Yes, I think it's a very good point, uh, particularly that the last election in the United States, I think, was probably the most closely watched one in, in Australian history, uh, we, we, partly because the technology allowed us to do it, but also because there was so much interest in whether Trump was going to get a second term. And I think all of us probably looked upon it and thought, this is utterly crazy, the, the patchwork of, of, of different officials, the involvement of local party bosses in, 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 in the appointment of people, the politicisation of absolutely every office just mm. leads to this, this corrosion of trust in the integrity of the process and it allows, it basically tills the ground for the kind of thing that Trump was then able to say about mm. it not being legitimate. A final question here. Uh, my name's Steve and I'm You'll probably take this as a comment, but I'll try and squeeze a question mark in at the end. I'm a, I'm a big fan of compulsory voting. A good friend of mine, if my recollections are correct, worked at Federal Treasury for many years, and Ken Henry, who was the Secretary at the time, was giving a speech. Australia is at the forefront of econometric modelling and had four-year forward estimates, etc and is very good at looking at the impact of every policy and how some, how, who will be affected, who won't be, etc., etc. And he put that all down to compulsory voting because politicians and the bureaucrats want to know exactly the effect across the whole population because the whole population will get to vote. And I'm just, I'm, I've mentioned it for the, if other people didn't know it, and I was just wondering if you are aware of that. So that's my little question mark. Yeah, I mean, Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think that that argument about for compulsory voting, which means that the politicians have to take consideration of everybody in the country, links to a more egalitarian policy. For example, I think that if we didn't have compulsory voting, we wouldn't have Medicare because the Liberals were committed to dismantling it, but introduced as Medibank by Whitlam, dismantled by Fraser, reintroduced by Hawke, a certain sort of national health system. The Liberals were still committed to dismantling it, but once it had been bedded down during that period, Australians had got used to it in that 13 years of Labor government, the Liberals couldn't risk it because it would have been electoral suicide. Without compulsory voting, I think they would have got rid of it. That was Judith Brett with the 2022 Henry Parks Oration, presented fittingly in Old Parliament House by the Henry Parks Foundation in partnership with the Museum of Australian Democracy. And we thank them for this recording. I'm Paul Barclay. Bye for now. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.